a number of years ago, my son Lachlan and I did a scuba diving course. Uh, and there were a few days of lectures, uh, followed by a couple of days of practical training. Uh, it was pretty intense. The instructors really were experts. Now, to be honest, during the course, especially the theory bits, I thought at times they were a bit intense. Uh, and perhaps they didn't need to be quite so thorough about checking that we understood and that we could remember everything we'd learned. That was until I was diving at the bottom of Sydney Harbour and I realised all of a sudden there are 20 metres of water above me and that there are tonnes and tonnes of water pushing in on my eardrums and that each breath of air that was keeping me alive was coming out of that tank on my back through the regulator in my mouth and I suddenly felt very fragile and that if something went wrong or if I did something the wrong way, I was in serious trouble. And without panicking, I then had to remember the process of how I had to take my mask off and then put it back on and clear all the water out of it all, all without drowning. Now that's when I was very glad for my conscientious instructors who'd taken the time to make sure I'd learned what was true rather than what was false. In matters of life and death, you want someone who'll teach you truth, not lies, because lies can be deadly. Now that's exactly what Peter reckons as he writes this next part of his letter. He's targeting the false teachers in the church. They're dangerous, they're deadly, they're teaching error, they need to be stopped. It's why he uses some of the toughest language you'll find in the Bible. He calls them brute beasts, blots and blemishes, with eyes full of adultery. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They're slaves of depravity. They're dogs returning to vomit. They're pigs wallowing in mud. Now, these are people who are in the church. They're, these are not outsiders. They're not people out there. They were sitting next to you on a Sunday morning. And Peter is so upset because they're doing so much damage. When you know who the enemy is, it's sort of easy to ignore them. You're not enticed because you say, oh no, that's wrong. But when these people say they're Christian, they say they've got special knowledge that every Christian needs to know. And they're leading Christians astray. They're deceitful and deadly. And so instead, Peter wants his readers to hold on to what he's taught them, to hold on to the gospel that was passed down from Jesus through the apostles to them. The calling and the election of God to trust in Jesus. The need to make that calling sure by building into their lives qualities of godliness. We saw that last week in the first half of chapter 1. And, and Peter wants to say that's a solid foundation for life. In matters of life and death, you want someone who teaches truth, not lies. And so he starts off this part of his letter by saying it all again. Don't forget it. It's a matter of life and death. Look there in verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. This is not new stuff. It's the old truths and he's reminding people of what they first believed in. Now that's the job of those of us who preach. 
Our job, as much as we're tempted to want to come up with something new and exciting every week, that's not our job. Our job is not to excite you with new stuff. Our job is to keep reminding you of the things you already know. When you're tempted to be distracted from them, when you're tempted to lose focus, when you're tempted to not be satisfied with them, keep reminding you of the basic truths of the gospel because those are what will keep you going in the Christian life. They'll make sure you're received by Jesus on the last day. You never outgrow those truths. Every day of your life, you need to recognise that you are a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. Every day, you need to recommit yourself to following Jesus in gratitude and loyalty. You don't get beyond those truths. Now, one of the reasons Peter is so keen to do that is because he realises he's not going to be around much longer to teach them. Uh, Look at these verses in verse 13. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. As long as there's breath in his body, he doesn't know how much longer he's got, but as long as he's got breath, he will do whatever he can to make sure that his message sticks with his hearers. Uh, He goes on, verse 15, I'll make every effort to see that after my departure you'll always be able to remember these things. He says he's going to make every effort. He's actually encouraged his hearers back in verse 10 to do exactly the same thing, to make every effort, to make sure of their calling. He's going to show commitment, consistency, perseverance, planning, application, attention to detail. He's got one life left to live and it's a finite length of time. He's not going to waste it. What's every effort involved? I wonder if part of it is also not just in this life but beyond his life. I wonder if every effort is about leaving lasting reminders for his hearers. Teaching that will live beyond him. This letter that he writes. Or or perhaps even recording his memories of Jesus. Perhaps what eventually became known as Mark's Gospel. I can imagine around this time, maybe 60, 70 AD, Peter's getting older. He's looking around as his colleagues, those who knew Jesus, get older and some die. And there are fewer and fewer eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus. How important it would be for those who remain to record their stories so that people wouldn't forget so that they would have a solid foundation for what they believe in. Now, it's especially important uh, because there are competing claims for truth, which Peter moves on to in verse 16. Peter compares himself to these false teachers. Look at verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Rather than fakes, make sure you follow what's real. Uh, In the movie uh, National Treasure, I don't know if you've seen it, Nicolas Cage, uh, he's he's the goody, he's not the baddie, but for good reasons, apparently, he steals the American Declaration of Independence. 
He goes into the National Archives in Washington, he breaks in, he rolls it up, he puts it inside his jacket. But on the way out, he manages to break all the, the secure security features, but he gets stopped in the souvenir shop by a zealous uh, shop assistant who thinks he's stealing one of the posters uh, that are copies of the original Declaration of Independence. And so he has to pay for his, his souvenir. So he, puts, he makes it outside and there are a whole bunch of people who are chasing him, trying to steal a Declaration of Independence. Long story short, they finally succeed, they open the, the document case and inside they find the copy, the poster, complete with price tag. Uh, he's done the old switcheroo and he's hidden the real one and they've been chasing after the fake. What a waste. What a waste to spend your life chasing a counterfeit, a fake, a forgery. So much effort and you end up with something worthless. Uh, that feeling of waste is what I feel when I see two young Mormon missionaries walking the streets. Or I see the huddle of neatly dressed Jehovah's Witnesses gathering on the street corner preparing to door knock. What a waste. They're genuine, they're committed, they're enthusiastic, they're giving their lives, but for a mistake. They're chasing a counterfeit Christianity, a counterfeit that gets Jesus wrong, that gets salvation wrong. It's error that's deadly. Or in Peter's case and his opponents, it's the truth about Jesus' return they're getting wrong. That's probably what he's talking about in verse 16 uh, when he says, we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's already talked about Jesus' return in verse 11, a few verses before. The whole of chapter 3 is about Jesus' return. Uh, we find out in chapter 3 that uh, there are scoffers who are saying Jesus isn't coming back. Uh, and so Peter says, trust me, uh, firstly, because verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, and then he goes on to describe an extraordinary event. Uh, a time he got to see Jesus revealed in full splendour. Uh, like they'd taken their sunglasses off and were looking straight at the sun. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's thinking about the transfiguration, uh, that time when Jesus took Peter, James and John up on a, on a mountain. Uh, Luke chapter 9, in, uh, Matthew and Mark also describe it. Luke chapter 9 says that as Jesus was praying the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendour and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter and his friends saw Jesus' glory. And as well they heard a voice from heaven, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. It's an almost unbelievable event but it was seen and heard by multiple witnesses. And so Peter says to his hearers, listen to me, I've got the true information about Jesus. 
I've seen Jesus glorified, just like he will appear when he returns. I've heard Jesus' voice, I've heard God's voice confirming him. And I think he's saying, I've seen the preview, I've seen the entree, I've seen the taste. So you can trust me when I say he's coming back like I've already seen him. These events that you're basing your life on, especially the return of Jesus that you're hoping for, they're solid, they're reliable, they're certain, they're historical. Trust me, says Peter. The second piece of evidence he presents is the testimony of Scripture. Trust me, trust Scripture. Uh, The Old Testament he's thinking of, the Old Testament that promised Jesus, that promises Judgment Day. Uh, And his point is that it's not made up of cleverly invented stories either. He didn't make up stories. The prophets didn't make up stories. Uh, For them, God told them what to speak. Uh, See there in verse 21? For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture's written by men, but they're not the author. God is the teacher in Scripture, so you can trust it. Two reliable pieces of evidence. And Peter's point uh, with all of that is back there in verse 19. Back there in verse 19. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. I've got the truth. Pay attention to the truth because your life depends on it. Like the beginner scuba diver. Your life depends on it. Pay attention to the truth. Don't listen to lies. Now lies is the, uh, the subject of chapter 2. Paul, uh, Peter goes on to talk about the lies. What these false teachers are like. Now there's a whole lot of detail. We're not going to spend uh, a lot of time focusing on it. But I will just point out some general characteristics. And then make some observations about some lessons to learn. Uh, So for starters, notice the false teachers' words. Uh, They teach false doctrine, destructive heresies, verse 1. Verse 1 says they deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Now probably they're not denying that Jesus existed. Uh, They're probably denying something about his identity or maybe about his work. Or, Or else the claim that he makes on their lives. They're denying that he can be their Lord. Uh, Maybe that's what they're denying. Uh, Verse 3 says they tell stories they've made up. Uh, Then there's their motivation. Uh, They're not making a genuine mistake. Those of us who teach will occasionally get passages wrong. We we disagree on some things. Uh, They're not misunderstanding the odd Bible verse. Verse 1 says they secretly introduce the lies. This is intentional deceit. That's not a mistake. Verse 3 says they're doing it for greed. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. They're making up stories that are attractive and will pay. You don't want to let the truth get in the way of a good story. It doesn't matter if it's true, if it pays. That's what is most important. Now, that's what they're like on the inside, their attitudes and their motivations. If, if you're that rotten on the inside, it's going to show itself in your actions. Verse 2 talks about their shameful ways. Uh, jump down to verse 13, you can see a bit more detail about the sorts of things they did. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They're blots and blemishes, 
revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. Whatever pleasure they feel like, they just satisfy it. Life is one long party. They're experts in greed. They've got a PhD in greed. Now that's a title that you'd be ashamed of. Exploiting people. Using people to satisfy whatever they want. And what's the result of that behaviour? Verse 2, many follow them. They're popular. They're impressive. But not because they're actually helping people. Verse 14 says they're seducing the unstable. They drag people down to their level. Uh, Verse 17 explains in a bit more detail how that works. Uh, Verse 17 says these men are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Three different images uh, that I think are explained in the verses that follow. So springs without water. In other words, they promise much, but they deliver little. Uh, You see a well, oh great, I'm so thirsty, and you walk up to the well, oh, there's nothing in it. So they promise much, but they deliver little. Verse 18 explains that. They mouth empty boastful words. By appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They're promising maturity and success and freedom, but instead they deliver slavery and failure and lies. The irony is they're promising freedom and victory, but they themselves are living as slaves. That's the point of the second image, I think. Mists driven by a storm. They don't actually have any ability to stop and stay in one place. They're just driven along. They have no substance or resistance. They just get carried along. There's no self-control. Verse 19, I think, explains that image of mist driven by a storm. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and 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 are again entangled in it and overcome. They're preaching freedom but they're actually slaves themselves. They're hopelessly trapped. They just constantly give in to their sinful nature. They never say no. That's slavery, it's not freedom. And they're headed for judgment. That's the third image. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That's explained from the end of verse 20. They're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit a sow that's washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. There's nothing genuine about their repentance or change. They're actually worse than they were at the beginning. Their deception has become easier and easier to see as they become more corrupted. It's a a terrible picture, isn't it? A terrible portrait. It's hard to imagine how they could even be mistaken as genuine Christians, isn't it? These sorts of people would stand out as rotten in any group of people, let alone a church. 
We don't know much about the specifics of what they taught or believed. At chapter 3, we know they denied Jesus' return. Uh, one possibility, I think, that might explain their blatant sin is that they'd twisted the message of grace. When Paul says they denied their sovereign Lord, not only didn't it matter that they sinned, but to sin outrageously was actually a celebration. It was a sign of maturity. I'm no longer bound by those old-fashioned laws. I'm free to do whatever I like. How good is grace? I can just grab as much grace as I like and then sin and just do what I like. They loved Jesus as saviour but didn't like the bit about being Lord. So I think that's what Peter means in verse 1 when he says they denied the sovereign Lord. But Peter says that's not the Christian life. The Christian life has to, uh, Christian faith has to produce something to be genuine. If you've got genuine faith, you will be changed. He said it already, hasn't he? Make your calling and election sure by adding these qualities to your life. Genuine faith won't leave you unchanged. Well, that's a quick sketch of the teachers. What are some lessons? What is it that God is saying to us in his word? Firstly, I think he's saying to us, remember the basics. Remember the basics. Don't be tempted to think you have to come up with something new. Don't be dissatisfied with what you've been given. You've been given all that you need uh, for life and godliness. The basics of the gospel are that God made you, demands your loyalty, You are a sinner who's rejected him and deserves judgment instead. But God sent Jesus to die in your place. He forgives your sin and gives you life and makes you his child and gives you grace daily to live in obedience with Jesus as your king. Those are the basics. That's the gospel. That's the evangel in Greek. That's why we're called evangelicals, because that message is our focus. That's our emphasis. There is nothing more important than that news. We need to keep reminding each other of it. There's always more you can learn about it, but we never get beyond that message. So don't be tempted if someone offers you something extra, something better, the shortcut, the inside track, the special knowledge. Lesson one, remember the basics. Lesson two, test what your teachers say. Test what your teachers say, including me. Don't just accept something because someone says it. Check it for yourself. God's word is the authority. Paul commends the Bereans. Paul Paul commends the Bereans in uh, Acts 17.11 as being of noble character because they received the message with great eagerness And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, if the Bereans tested what Paul said, then obviously you need to test what I say. So make sure it's there in the Bible. Read your Bible. God is speaking in it to you. Most of the Bible is easy enough for most of us to understand. There are some tricky bits, but the majority of it you can understand. Get to know your Bible so well that when someone says something that's a bit dodgy, you think, it doesn't sound right. I better check that. I'm sure I read something different. 
The Bible is our measuring stick for everything. Uh, Read your Bible. Third lesson is there will always be non-Christians in the church. That's reality. There will be non-Christians in the church. These false teachers were sitting next to you in church on a Sunday. Well, hopefully not you, but they were sitting next to Christians in church. Don't assume that every churchgoer is a Christian. Non-Christians sometimes are easy to pick, but other times it's not so easy. The reality is when people hang around Christians for long enough, they can get pretty good at knowing what to do and what to say. Perhaps that's you, someone who's hung around Christians so long that maybe even you think you're a Christian. Perhaps you're good at talking the talk, knowing when to stand up and sit down and what to say. But perhaps you're one person on a Sunday and someone completely different Monday to Friday. Perhaps you've never truly bowed the knee to Jesus in repentance and submission and loyalty. You can fool others, but you can't fool God. What are you like on the inside? Christianity is about a change on the inside. It's not about how long you've attended It's not about who your parents are, what books you've read or how much money you donate. These false teachers had fooled lots of people but they couldn't fool God. Judgment is hanging over their head, says Peter, says God. Don't let that be you. Listen to Peter. Listen to God. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, light that shines into our darkness. We pray that your spirit would do its work in our hearts. Help us to trust it. Change us that we might resemble Jesus, that we might make our calling and election sure. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.